Experience the feeling of powder floating up to your goggles. Take in a sweeping panoramic view from atop a mountain ridgeline. Feel the thrill of laying an edge on perfect corduroy and arcing a sweeping turn. Relax in front of a crackling fireplace at the end of a great day on the mountain. Welcome to Inside the Mountain Collective, the podcast series that takes you on a journey to the dream destinations included on the Mountain Collective Pass. Each episode will take you on a collective trek, visiting two or more resorts, giving you local insights into how to maximize your Mountain Collective Pass and to explore some of the sport's most exhilarating destinations. Check it out today at mountaincollective.com. Now join us on a collective trek with our local guides on Inside the Mountain Collective. New England is home to many great ski areas, but if you want to discover a truly big mountain, grab your Mountain Collective Pass and head up to Maine's Sugarloaf. There is no other place quite like Sugarloaf, the biggest resort east of the Rockies with nearly 3,000 feet of vertical drop. Sugarloaf offers sweeping runs carved into the forest, gladed tree runs, and the only lifts served above treeline skiing in the east. Add to that some easily accessible backcountry and you have quite a unique experience. To explore Sugarloaf, we called upon longtime local legend Seth Westcott. Seth grew up in nearby Farmington and spent many childhood afternoons ripping down the mountain. Westcott went on to win two Olympic gold medals in the rough-and-tumble sport of snowboard cross. Seth knows every inch of the mountain as he took us to the top, through the glades, out into the backcountry, and down to his own watering hole, the Rack Barbecue, on the Sugarloaf Access Road. This episode is a great one to catch up with the Olympic champion and learn more about the mountain that he calls home. Grab a trail map at sugarloaf.com and let's join local Seth Westcott for a tour of Sugarloaf. Welcome back to Inside the Mountain Collective. I'm your host, Tom Kelly, and today we're joined by two-time Olympic champion Seth Westcott from Sugarloaf. And Seth, thanks for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure. Happy to be here today. You know, I want to first start out and talk just a little bit about Sugarloaf. We're going to dive into the details of it, but just the vibe up there. I mean, you grew up in nearby Farmington. I visited out there many, many times, but that place just has a really special vibe. It really does. I mean, I I felt so lucky to grow up just down the road. And, you know, for me, it was kind of, you know, I was new to winter sports when I first got introduced to Sugarloaf. And it just seemed kind of unbelievable that there was this place just up the road that was that great. And there was kind of this lore and energy around the place that just made me fall in love with it as a kid. Yeah, it's you know it's if for folks who haven't been out to Sugarloaf, if you're planning an inside the or planning a mountain collective trip, it's not in the middle of nowhere, but you can probably see it from there. But it is that to me, it's always been that remoteness. You know, you can get up there in a few hours from Portland, but you are you're up in the woods and you're in this really special place, and it's all about the skiing and the riding. Yeah, it's it's got a unique feel. You know, I mean, it's only 30 miles from the Canadian border. There's really nothing between there and Canada. And the vastness that you feel for the East Coast of like the actual amount of nature around that place is pretty incredible. You know, half of the the valley that it's situated in, the Carabasset Valley, is actually owned by the local the Penobscot Indian Nation. And it's kind of in a, you know, a permanent nature status, if you will. And then 
across the valley is this section where the Appalachian Trail runs through the valley and it's the Bigelow Mountain Range and there's numerous peaks that you look out at and that's all in a giant nature preserve too. So there's really unique stuff about it that you you look around that, you know, the town adopted, adopted way back in the the leadership of the town that you would never have chain stores there. So like everything is an actual local business, you know, you're never going to have a McDonald's or a Starbucks come in and, and it, it's kept that unique flavor ever since it was founded in the, in the early fifties in 1951. Yeah. Of all the ski areas that I've been to around the world, this is just a, a truly special place. Let's talk a little bit about your career. You grew up in Farmington, not all that far from Sugarloaf. Somehow you got into competitive snowboarding and you rode the wave in the new Olympic sport at that time of snowboard cross. Give us a little background on how you got into the competitive side and how did you make your way up that pathway when snowboard cross became a part of the Olympic Winter Games? Well, again, I was really fortunate to live where I lived. You know, Carabasset Valley Academy, which is right there at the base of the mountain, was the first ski academy in North America and as far as I know, the world to adopt snowboarding early on. And Mark Fawcett and Jeremy Jones were the first two snowboarders to go there. And so there was really an early acceptance of competitive snowboarding right there. You know, many years before I got to go to the games, that was actually the kickoff for the whole U.S. Grand Prix Series, the first halfpipe event that ever happened in the Grand Prix. And then the following year, the first ever Olympic qualifiers, which were the first of three events to qualify for Nagano were there. And so I, I actually started as a freestyle rider originally. But yeah, we were very fortunate to have such a committed competition background there. And really the comp center that's been there forever, whether it was, you know, the big, the big thing that they love to reminisce about is when the World Cup came there in 71. But there's just always been this history of whether it's ski racing or competitive snowboarding. And so I was lucky that that school was right up the road there. I was part of the first ever CBA weekend program when that program first kicked off in 1990. And then that culminated with me getting a scholarship and going to CBA for my senior year. So it was, a, it was an amazing place to have a start in, in all of it. You went on to win two Olympic gold medals in snowboard cross. We're going to get to those in just a minute. But tell us a little bit about the sport itself and and what makes it so exhilarating to watch. I, I just think it's amazing. You know, the for me, it's like the the feeling of riding over that terrain. I mean, it's it's very you know, I would equate it to snowboarding's version of, of downhill that, you know, you're just trying to gain speed the entire way. And although it's a, a man-made course, instead of running on the, the natural slopes, it, it's really just thrilling. And to, to bring in the actual head-to-head competition aspect of it is just incredible. I mean, I, I started as a freestyler and, you know, at one point, I think I became a little bit disenchanted with the idea of judges telling you how you're event went that day. And that was about the same time that I discovered snowboard cross. And I really never turned back. It was just an amazing outlet for me to be able to pair the racing skills that I had developed as a young kid in snowboarding. And then the freestyle skills of being comfortable jumping through the air and everything into one discipline. And and I just thrived off the head to head competition of it. I thought that was just amazing. In that head-to-head competition, you generally have four riders going head-to-head. You're going out of these start gates at the top. You're going through bank turns. You're going off jumps. It really and it's a contact sport too, oh, more yeah. or less. Yeah, it really is. It, you know, we and we ran 
on the World Cup and through X Games and everything, there sometimes if the courses were big enough, we'd run heats of six. You know, both of the Olympics that I was in were heats of four. But yeah, there's everyone's kind of fighting for that same fastest line in the course that you would practice prior to your time trial runs. And yeah, it's just, it's so thrilling. And, you know, there's so much that goes on. Like you end up having drafting in the courses and being in there, you know, right on someone's tail. And all of a sudden you could feel that you would pull the draft in them and be able to to make a pass. It was just some truly unique moments in snowboarding that I've just never been able to recreate in any other way. And I, I do miss it a bit. It's, it's so much fun to be in there in the heat of battle and, and racing head to head like that. Let's go to February 2006 in Bardonecchia, just outside of Torino, the Olympic Winter Games, the debut of snowboard cross, and you found yourself in that gold medal round and on top of the podium. Yeah, that was that was a really special day. I mean, I had, I had won the world championships the year before. I'd come in riding really well. I'd won a numerous time trials that year, but hadn't quite put it together in the heats. But that that course, it just really played to a lot of my strengths. And I kind of, you know, the other couple of favorites that I thought I would have been racing for the the gold medal round had gone out in their own heats earlier in the day. And so it was like, when I got to that final, it just felt like it was mine for the taking. And, you know, I, I bobbled the start a little bit, but I'd had a little, a few races with Radoslav Zedek that ended up for the silver over the years prior. And I just knew if I was patient, I would be able to pass him in some of the turns later down. And yeah, it was that initial feeling of crossing the finish line when you'd been working towards a goal like that for so many years. And just the thrill of that moment was something I will be with me for the rest of my life. I mean, it was just a truly spectacular moment. Seth, what was the homecoming like when you came back to the Carabasset Valley to Sugarloaf, Maine? It was pretty insane. It was, I mean, even leaving was was quite the send off. But then, yeah, it was it was amazing. You know, we we did some ride with days with the kids that you know, kind of having this parade of a thousand kids on the hill and coming down and. The governor was there and made it a state holiday for the day. And it was just a, an amazing thing because it's, you know, as a World Cup athlete, like we travel so much and so much of what you do is with your team or individual. And to have a moment like that, that you really felt like you were bringing something home to your home community and to be able to share it with everyone was just such a special moment. Now, Seth, it's one thing to win an Olympic gold medal. It's really quite another to come back four years later to repeat the feat. But you did that up in Vancouver. Yeah, it was, again, uh, you know, I ups and downs of some injuries in the intervening years. I'd shattered an arm in 07. I'd broken, fractured some vertebrae in 08. And the year before, I had a really good season. I had my first World Cup win over in Arosa, Switzerland, and ended up second overall for the World Cup the year before. And and that confidence kind of translated into that Olympic season again. I, I won a number of time trials again. I'd, I'd won the time trial at X Games the week before Vancouver by almost a full second. And yeah, I just I came in again, just kind of riding that wave of confidence. And, and yeah, for whatever reason, I, you know, I, I seem to love to 
shine on the bigger stages, you know, when I look at my career, it's like the four world championship podiums that I had and and the two Olympics, it was always like I could hit this other gear when I'd get something to an event like that, that had so much more meaning behind it and, and just kind of rise to that next level. And, and it was, you know, again, I'd, I'd messed up in the time trial that morning. So I had no lane choice the whole day. And I kind of jokingly with my wax tech, Curtis Baca that morning, I, I ended up getting the 17th bib, which had been my, my soccer number for all my years growing up. It had kind of been my lucky number. And, and before the first heat, I was like, well, you know, the, I was in spinning on the bike in our wax room and Foley comes in and tosses me the bib. And, and uh, I looked at Curtis and I looked at the number and I was just like, well, it's, it's game on. Here we go. You know, I got my lucky number for a bib and I was just like, it doesn't matter what gate I have. Just, you know, I, I ended up, I knew within a heat or two, I'd be in the black bib all day. So we were just started talking about, you know, being the dark horse and, even as the defending Olympic champion, but it was just such a great feeling and had some really magical heats. You know, Nate Holland and I had a heat in the semifinal against two of the Austrians, Mario Fuchs and Lucas Gruner. And, you know, just kind of tag teamed them to, you know, we kind of said before we were like, okay, like this heat isn't for anything. Let's just as a nation, let's get through to the finals here. And we ran a couple really good races together. He was with me for the quarter and the semis that day. And yeah, just another one of those really special days. And that feeling, you know, of crossing the line again and the way that like both of those days really with Bardenecchia and with Vancouver, you know, the number of people there in the stadium. And it was just such a different feeling than the typical World Cup where sometimes there wouldn't be that many people watching. So just really magic to be a part of it. Well, it's a great legendary history, and we appreciate you joining us here today. Let's go up on the mountain. And folks, this is a really large mountain. Give us a little bit of a sense. I know that it's almost 3,000 vertical feet, one of the biggest mountains in the east. Yeah. Yeah, we're 2,800 vertical on hill. I I used to make fun of a lot of my Western friends because they'd always you know, they'd be like, ah, I can't believe you live back there. I'm like, ah, we got 500 more vertical than you. Or, you know, I'd always have the stats of all their home hills. And it is, it's, it's a, it's a great mountain. You know, the, the kind of unique thing about it, and especially growing up, you know, now that we've had these expansions to Burnt Mountain, it's changed a little bit, but it back in the day when you could ride the gondola straight to the top, take any mountain, any run on the mountain and come back to the, the same base. It has this just flow to it that, you know, it's a lot of direct fall line ride. There's actually really good steeps for the East Coast and it's, it's consistent, you know, it's, it's really cool. Like some training days years later when Alex Tuttle had become a part of the U S team as a recent CVA graduate, we'd go up on early mornings and I was just like, okay, we're doing the West to East day. And you just put on your race board and literally start, you know, over on West mountain and work your way every run all the way across. And, you know, you would have done, you know, 35 miles of riding by the time we were done in the afternoon and, and just really cooked your legs. But it's a, it's such a great classic Eastern ski mountain. And I credit all my years of staying there as a home to how effective it was for training for me, you know, that I could come back and get really effective mileage, you know, when the snow was hard, that just made it seem like other places were softer when you were racing in other parts of the world. And, you know, you look at the ski talent that's come out of there as from Bodie and Kirsten Clark and Forrest Carey and, 
we had a great group of athletes in the the four-year group that was at CBA when I was there. And like a lot of that continued for a long time where there was just this feeling of this place can make you a really great world-class racer. And that was something I always believed in and, and loved through all my years of competition. So I know, Seth, that the lift configuration has changed a little bit since you were growing up there and you were training there. But did you really do like 2,800 vertical foot laps and just keep lapping it all day long? Oh, yeah. I mean, in the early days when the gondola was running from the bottom, that was just incredible. Yeah, it was a it was really unique. And, you know, right as I graduated high school, we had what was put in at the time in the summer of 94 was called the super quad. And that's about 1600 vertical on one. And at the time that was one of the faster lifts in North America. And so it was the same thing that you'd just pound out laps on that thing all day as you're training, you know, you'd have your section of course that you were running or your run through the half pipe, but really it was all just about massive amounts of mileage and just going top to bottom on that thing over and over and over. And I do credit all those years of getting that mileage there as a big part of my success. You mentioned this earlier, but this is all fall line skiing. This is not a lot of roly poly roller coaster stuff. This is fall line skiing. Yeah, it really is. There's this, you know, when that chair went in, these two trails, King's Landing and Hayburner came in. And really from those, as you're looking a little bit on the west side of the mountain, all the way across to where you get into the King Pine Bowl on the other side, you know, with really the gondola line in the middle being the straightest, steepest, continuous fall line. But, you know, like narrow gauge, the race trail is right in there in the middle. Comp Hill is in there. Spillway, Sluice, like you could just hammer mileage on these steep fall line runs and it made you work so finitely on your edge control, because like, if you were going to just link carve turns down that stuff, it was, it was an amazing trainer because it was really that steep. You know, I, one of the things as I'm looking at it and reminiscing a little bit with you in many ways, it's kind of the Eastern version of what you find at Sun Valley, which is another mountain collective resort. Yeah, absolutely. I I think there's a lot of similar comparisons there for sure. It's, It's that feeling of fall line that just staying in the fall line the whole time. That's so fun. I love it. I I've had some great visits to Sun Valley over the years. That was where Curtis Baca, my wax tech has his shop, the wax room. And we had a couple of years of racing there as well, but yeah, it's, it's a very similar feel. Let's take a little bit of a mountain tour. And for the purpose of this tour, let's assume that you've got some buddies coming into town. They're intermediate to expert, maybe riders or skiers. What's the first place you're going to take them for that warm up morning on the mountain? My go to warm up run, and this goes back to being a kid, is Tote Road. You know, we used to do it from a little higher up. It was kind of a classic off the gondola because it was like a three mile run, but there's everything in it. And there's a there's a pitch in there called chicken pitch that is just awesome. Like we would on race training days, you know, especially if you were one of the first ones up, you'd kind of have this long, you know, almost a mile of this kind of rolling train where you're warming up, feeling your turns. And then it was always the greatest feeling of getting to the top of chicken pitch and not seeing anyone ahead of you. And you could just drop into this tuck for like 400 meters and be going like 70 miles an hour out at the bottom of it. And then there's this long flat that I really feel I would credit a lot of my gliding skills to because, 
you'd come off this pitch going so fast and it really taught you how to like, you know, let the board just float, you know, like the great downhillers do that you're not engaging edges. And, and then you just go into this kind of pitch and roll for another mile and a half or so down that you would work on pumping all those features and knifing turns on the downhill sides of all those rolls. And I still, any day that I'm home, that's, my go-to first run of the morning, you just roll right off the, the top of the super quad and right into tote road. And it's, it's just a classic. Yeah. Just looking at the trail map right now. And I do encourage listeners put the trail map up on your screen. You can get it at sugarloaf.com and you can see that right at the top of the super quad, you can find your way over to tote road and kind of winds its way around the mountain, maybe a little bit less fall line skiing as you get kind of a little bit more off the front face, but a really nice warm up run. So you've done that run down tote road. Everybody's feeling good. Where are you going to go next? It kind of depends on the day. I mean, I always loved like, especially especially early season, we would call, I always kind of tend to have these early season powder storms that I loved going to some of the older, more natural trails. Double Bitter is one that runs parallel to Tote. And then the other that's really probably my go-to if it's a powder morning is Bubble Cuffer. And it's one of those trails, you know, the, I think one of the the sad parts of the eighties with all the, the stuff that happened in the ski industry of all the people being litigious, you know, lots of rocks and things like that were removed from ski areas in that time. And bubble cuffer was one of the ones that kind of escaped that renovation projects. And it's just this, you know, it's great fall line. It's more of that tight, kind of old school Eastern feel and some really good pitches in it, but it always drifts in because our storms kind of, you know, blow in out of the West. And so for me being a goofy footed snowboarder, the left-hand side, it's like having a toe side wave that you're surfing and those left-hand sides just blow in with these big powder waves and features in along the tree line. And it's, it's one of my favorite go-tos. And what's the access lift? Is that off of Timberline? Yeah, you can either go off Timberline and drop into part of the front face there, or Skyline is the quad that replaced the old spillway double-double chair. There were two two doubles running up back in the day when I was there. And Skyline's our new fixed-grip quad, but it's got one of the conveyor belts, so it runs at a slightly higher speed, and it's a heavier chair so that you know with some of the wind that we typically get in the East, it, it operates much better on those windy days and can keep running. Let's head on over to the Eastern part of the area. And before we head off into the side country, let's talk a little bit about some of the really traditional runs off of King Pine. Yeah. 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 I mean, for me, Widowmaker over there, we used to train Super G on it. And at the bottom of Widowmaker is this run called the Flume. We would come out of our Super G courses would typically stop right at the start of that. And you could literally, you know, air like 100 to 150 feet down into the flume because you'd just come out of the Super G course mocking, make the slight right turn, and then the hill just falls away from you there. That was always like whenever they would say, ah, it's a Super G day today over in King Pine, we'd always get stoked because that was one of the really fun ones. Ripsaw is the other kind of classic skiers right of the, the chair there. And originally when I was growing up, it was called Sugan back in the day, but it's another one of those, for whatever reason, the way that the wind plays up there, it just, 
gets these amazing snow drifts going on the left-hand side of the trail. And it's, it's another one of those kind of slightly less manicured old school East coast runs and just some great topography in it. It's a lot of fun. We're going to head over into the side country in just a minute, but I want to go back to one other run that has a lot of history behind it on the main mountain. And that is narrow gauge. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, gauge is the race trail and you know, that, goes back to the world cup being there in 71, you know, I've watched, you know, the likes of Tommy Moe and AJ Kitt and Kyle Rasmussen in their days. And then Rolves and Bodie and their generation all race on it. We did a lot of race training on it with CVA and it, it still is, you know, they have the speed weeks there for the Eastern cups for downhill every year. And it's just an absolute classic, you know, you've, Kind of, yeah, I don't know. There's so many special memories on it. You know, it's always fun, like say when the A netting's all up, because it's kind of the one place you can really let loose if you're out just on a day free riding around and they haven't taken all the netting down from a race week. And just, yeah, a lot of classic memories of of myself and of actually watching that super high-end competition at Sugarloaf over the years there. It's, it's just an amazing classic. A lot of good insider intel here. We're going to head now into the side country. And one of the points I want to highlight is that the mountain was purchased some years back by Boyne Resorts. And I know that Seth Boyne and all of the teams that have worked at Sugarloaf have long taken counsel from you as a great local rider. But talk a little bit about the evolution of the side country terrain, the Burnt Mountain area, Bracket Basin, and the Eastern Territory, which is off on the east side of the mountain, which is really introduced something you just simply don't find at many ski areas anywhere in the country. Yeah, it's it's really unique. You know, it started for me when I was at CVA. There was, you know, you would hear these kind of misty stories of of different creek beds that you could go ride on a powder day. And uh, finally, my senior year, my my coach at the time, Eric Webster, took me on this run down what is really the Bra- the Bracket Brook Stream, which is where the Bracket Basin comes from. It's the headwaters of the Bracket Stream. There were these little waterfalls in it at times, and and it was just this kind of you had to know where to to duck out and duck in to get back in at the bottom of the mountain. And I almost think that that run over any other at Sugarloaf changed my way of thinking. And so a, a couple years later, I, I was back coaching at CVA myself before getting on the U.S. team. And so I started bringing my crew up in the fall. We would go for dry land hikes we'd go and we'd find these places where there were little cliff drops in the woods and we'd start clearing out little landing areas for them and take off areas. And our, our snowboard crew from CBA was really who got a lot of that stuff started in the summer of 90 fall of 96 was the first time we went in there to cut. And then we had a change in our ski patrol director, Stub Taylor, who was the original ski patrol director since the early 50s, you know, after basically a 45-year career, finally stepped down. And one of my friends who ended up becoming my business partner at the rack, Chase McKendry, took over patrol. And so a lot of my generation of friends that weren't pursuing competition stuff in their early 20s became patrollers. And so in the summertime, we would magically find out where the key to the lockbox for the chainsaws for patrol was. And there was a little bit of a blind eye that was turned for a few years that allowed us to start doing what later kind of became known as pirate glading up there. But yeah, it was it was the way it started. And 
the pirate glading crew grew for a number of years, kind of into the early 2000s. And at that point, there had started to be quite a few pretty phenomenal terrain pieces in there that had been opened up and were becoming known about. And so, yeah, when when Stephen came in and 2007, it was one of the first things I started pushing him on was, Hey, we got to, you know, we got to just, there's so much good stuff out there and it's so unique for the East coast. And we got to just start opening this up. And, and he was on board right away. And that was when the mountain actually started employing a proper trail crew to get out there and do the expansion and, and figure out the full topography of it and the runouts. And, and so then really the, the next logical step was just looking to the east and Burnt Mountain was sitting there as, you know, a sub peak of Sugarloaf, but really with another couple thousand vertical. And it started as a glade project. And what we called the Golden Road was like this long traverse where you could drop out of the, the snowfields on the backside of Sugarloaf and make your way over to the bottom of the ridge. And the way that the ridge usually stays windscoured, you could hike the ridge and you know, pretty quick because it would normally be right down to bare rock right on the ridge. But then as soon as you'd get, you know, the first 50 or 100 feet into the the glades, once you're up there, there was just this massive amount of snow always waiting for you because the traffic was so small. So it ran that way for a few years. And then I would say four years ago, they opened it up to, to cat skiing on the weekends. And cut in an access road for one of the house cats to be able to take people up to. And so on weekends, people can go over there and have a unique experience that really doesn't exist anywhere else on the East coast of being able to go cat skiing. And the rest of the week, you got great touring because you've got a cat track right to the top of it and no one else taking your, your tracks. So it's a, it's really just become this amazing asset that has been sitting there forever, but kind of got fully realized thanks to Stephen's recognition of the vision of it and, and being supportive of moving in that direction. If you are skiing or riding into the area, is the access off of the top of King Pine? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. You can traverse right out along the golden road there and then do the ridge hike or you don't, you can also cut in at a lower elevation and just do some of the lower elevation glades there. And then it all feeds back in to one of the, the basically the bottom condo or triple that's all the way down in the Snowbrook condo development down there. If you are coming off a of King Pine, do you need to do any skinning or split boarding or is it just let gravity do its job? No, you can let gravity do its job. And really the, you know, a lot of people will just do laps on the bracket basin part, which is all the immediate drop in out of the woods there off of Ripsaw and off of the King Pine chair. But yeah, it's, it's that stuff links back into the base of the chair really easily there. It's all just really cool, unique East coast skiing with some actual really good terrain in there. I mean, there's cliff bands that run through it that people can get as extreme as they want to do. And, and it's fun. Let's, before we leave the mountain and go into the operating mode, let's talk about the snow fields. That's another unique aspect of Sugarloaf. Yeah, it's the East Coast only lift serviced above treeline skiing and snowboarding. And it's, you know, when I was at high school at Mount Blue down in Farmington, you could see the, the backside ridge from the top floor of the high school. And it was always kind of a, a magical thing, you know, the way that again, the, the role that the wind plays at Sugarloaf, it transports a lot of the snow throughout the year. And even when they're snowmaking on trails like White Nitro, which is the, the front face part of the snow fields, the winds just pull the snow off, 
off the whole thing and fill that backside in so deep. And it's, it's pretty phenomenal. Like I've, you kind of have to pinch yourself sometimes because it just doesn't feel like you're skiing on Eastern terrain. When you get back there, it's actually really steep, amazing how the snow will transport and fill it in with natural snow. And it's, it's a really unique, again, Eastern skiing experience that whether it's deep powder in the middle of the winter or the corn snow and the corn snow in spring up there is just phenomenal because it's, you know, it's really facing more into the sun, you know, Sugarloaf goes directly North. So you actually get some really good corn snow skiing on that, that backside, that backside Ridge in the spring. And it's just a really cool, really cool experience. Just a little plug for the Mountain Collective Pass. We like to look at opportunities where there's two areas that are close by. These two are not, but Sugarloaf and La Massif, two really unique mountains in the east that offer things you just don't get anywhere else in the east. They're both on the Mountain Collective Pass. So a little bit of drive between the two, but if you're, if you're flying out to the east, a good way to combo up a couple uses of your Mountain Collective Pass. Yeah, those are, you know, I still haven't made it up to Massif. I've been hearing reports for years and years and I've had some friends from the world cup who lived there, but I, yeah, I think that's a, a good call on a, a truly unique Eastern ski trip that would give you, you know, the best terrain that the East has to offer. Let's talk about Opry now. At the end of the day, there are so many options, and you actually are still a, a part owner of the the Rack, which is one of the popular spots. But I, again, to go back to what we talked about at the start of the podcast, there's a really special vibe about this place, about Sugarloaf. So give us a little bit of a sense of what's it like at 4.30 in the afternoon when everybody comes down and is celebrating their days together. There's an energy there that's really cool. And I, you know, I've been able to do apres all around the world, but it's, I think one of the big things that people will feel when they go there, you know, Sugarloaf has a unique demographic that the majority of people that are there are second homeowners. And so it really is like, you know, the Portland community, the parts of the Boston community, like all these people come up every weekend and there's this really true sense of family there. And I think especially with the restaurants, that feeling carries over. You know, we were talking just before we went on about the days of Geppetto's and that was actually where I got my start up there as a dishwasher. But like Geppetto's and the bag have been such institutions there you know, for decades upon decades. And a lot of those guys, you know, I, my good friend, John Tobias, who's our director of golf is, has been behind the bar in the bag for decades now. And it's, there's this feeling of people, you know, feel like they're at home that really transfers over to the, the energy and the vibe and just how relaxed and laid back it is. And it's a cool place. And, Sugar loafers love their apres. So it's definitely whether it's a Sunday and the Pats game is on or, you know, if there's a ski race on on a Saturday or whatever, it's a, it's a unique place to come in and do that. And there's so many it's it's a part of the culture there for sure. It's a big part of the culture. I think, you know, it's as, as I think about this and, and uh, I've been there a number of times over the years and every time I've been there, I've really felt welcomed by all of those others. But I really want to know what qualifies you to be a sugar loafer? <laughs> you would get a defi- different definition from that from people who have lived there as long as I have or, or the, you know, the thing I was really experiencing this summer is just the end last spring was the difference of how many people relocated during COVID, you know, the, 
our little local school system in Stratton had like 30 new kids out of a school that's only, you know, like 150 year round kids. And so it was neat because there was kind of a little bit of an exodus up there where people kind of realized, you know, hey, I can do this office job from anywhere during COVID and people moved up. But some people would say you had to be born there. Some people would just say, welcome into the the community and but there is this sense it's like being a sugar loafer it is the place that's most important to you in life and and i think like many people from all walks of life embody that whether it's you know friends of mine that i know who have worked at the mountain for going on 30 years now and or say those older generations that were there that welcomed me in when i came there's just this sense that if you're there, then you're meant to be there. And it's a, a place that people just truly enjoy the lifestyle of whether it's, you know, skiing in the summer, snowboarding in the, or skiing and snowboarding in the winter or the, the golf and the mountain biking in the summer. It's just this, it really is like a Mecca for Maine for people to go and to recreate and to have a good time and, and kick back and enjoy themselves. That's a very welcoming place. Seth Westcott, I want to thank you for joining us. We're going to close it out now with our collective dreams section, a little checklist of questions for you. And to kick it off, I know it's always hard to pick favorites, but do you have like that one favorite run on the mountain that you just can't miss whenever you're up there? Yeah, I mean, I, I think for for me, I mean, my my warm up would always be Tote Road. And then I love Gandhi, the gondola line. You know, we kind of all as locals affectionately call it Gandhi. And just that steep, unrelenting maximum fall line of the whole mountain straight down the middle. And, you know, I still kind of have images of when I was a kid of, of riding the gondola chairs up there and, you know, people cheering from the gondolas when people would be hitting the bumps on the upper pitches and stuff like that. And it's to me, that's definitely like where I relive so many great memories of my life with friends on powder days. It's uh, it's that run. When you're heading to the mountain in the morning, where's the best place to stop for a cup of coffee? Well, anywhere we go where we are, Carabasset Coffee is our local roaster that's down in Kingfield. Usually I would just run into Java Joe's at the bottom in the backside of the hotel there, but kind of our whole valley has a thing for Kingfield or for Carabasset Coffee. And I feel like we've been lucky to have that as our local brewer or, or a roaster. How about the best pizza or burger on the mountain I think or in the base? Both of those categories go to the bag. They have a, a wood-fired pizza oven there and you know their their burgers have been winning awards for years in ski magazines and stuff like that. I, I get the Gucci burger personally, which is draped with pepperoni, like a it's a different it's like a side cut of pepperoni, so it's like long pepperoni strips on either side of it. And their their mystery sauce, which we used to call glop back in the days, but I I know the name has changed, but it's it that's to me there's no better burger anywhere in the world. How about the best restaurant or bar owned by a an Olympic champion in town? <laughs> well, you got to go down to the bottom of the access road for that one. Yeah, I mean, we're this is 17 winners of having the rack now, and I love it. I've spent countless hours in there. I mean, really, it was the old Carabasset Brewing Company, and so a lot of us grew up, you know, turning 21 in that building. And prior to that, it was the Ski Rack Ski Shop, which is where we got the name for it. It was one of the first places that I ever saw a snowboard for sale in the mid eighties. And, you know, the thing that we loved to do was live music. And when we, my partners and I went in to, to keep the restaurant a restaurant, it was probably, 
looking at being torn down and having condos on the site, we just said, this is too much of a local institution to let this go away. And so we jumped in and, and really kicked up the number of live bands in the year and expanded, you know, a lot of the building wasn't being utilized in its previous iteration. And so we opened up all of the building and just wanted to be welcoming to families and, you know, show ski movies every night in the back room and, and have bands multiple times a week. And it's, it's been a labor of love, but man, it's been a lot of fun times over the years too. You know, it's kind of interesting when you ask you the question, what did you do with your Olympic gold medal? Well, you invested in a restaurant and bar 17 years later, it's still there. Yeah, it is. And it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's been an amazing, amazing journey. Like just unique bands, you know, Greg Stump was there a number of years to show one of his new movies, which I used to go see his world premieres when his offices were still in Portland. Yeah, it's been just classic. You know, we had Darren Rolf's retirement party in there when the Alpine Championships are there one year. Just classic moments, Sugarloaf moments that we've kind of kept the living room open for Sugarloaf, if you will, and invite everyone to treat it as their home and come in and have a good time. It's been so much fun. It's a great spot. How about your favorite local craft beer? I was thinking about this for the last few days. There's two. There's one is they're both IPAs. They're both main IPAs. And Orono Brewing has one called Tubular, which is just spectacular. And then the other one was actually these two brothers who had gone to the University of Maine at Farmington started a brewing company called Bissell Brothers. And they have a beer called Substance that, man, it just melts in your mouth. <laughs> Those are my two favorites and I would stack them up against any IPAs anywhere in the world. We've, Maine has a great brewing tradition and the younger generation that's doing it right now is doing it exceptionally well. Maine does have a great brewing tradition. Allagash has always been one of my favorites. Yeah, so it's just a great tradition in Maine. Okay, one last question for you, and this stumps a lot of people, but as a sugar loafer, how can you describe Sugarloaf in just one word? One word to describe this mountain that has really characterized your life. Home. I'll take it. Home. Yeah. No, and I, and I, you know, we always talk about being a sugar loafer. And I, I think as you think about what that word means to everyone, I, I think everyone, you know, we have this spot on Route 27 North where you come around the corner that's affectionately called Oh My Gosh Corner. And you come around the corner there. And, and I think kind of the refrain that everyone would say is, ah, I'm home, you know, and that's uh, for me running all around the world and always racing back from the Portland airport. That was kind of the moment where it was like, you know, you'd take a deep breath and relax and no matter how far I'd traveled, whether it was from the Himalayas or Antarctica or any of the far off places, you're like, ah, I'm finally home. Well, Seth Westcott, Olympic champion, it has been a joy to have you here on Inside the Mountain Collective and for taking us home to Sugarloaf. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Tom. Have a great day. Thanks to Olympic champion Seth Westcott for the mountain tour of Sugarloaf. For a collective trek this winter, head east and spend a couple days at Sugarloaf and then drive up to Quebec's La Massif. You can learn more about New England's biggest mountain at Sugarloaf.com. That's Sugarloaf.com. Thanks for joining us on Inside the Mountain Collective. Watch for more episodes coming up soon. I'm your host, Tom Kelly, and I'll see you on the mountain this winter. Are you ready to build your own collective trek? The Mountain Collective Pass is your ticket to multi-resort skiing or riding. Get yours today at mountaincollective.com. You'll get two days at each participating resort, 
plus 50% off additional days. It is the perfect pass to take just one trip and be able to ski or ride at multiple resorts. Build your own collective trek today. I'm your host, Tom Kelly. Thanks for listening, and make sure to subscribe to get every episode delivered directly to you. Watch for more episodes of Inside the Mountain Collective, and I'll see you on the mountain.